This is Reading the Globe. It's January 31, 2022. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting live from New York. Mideast Progress Many observers of the political and diplomatic scene in the Middle East and of Israel's continuing efforts to strengthen its ties with those in the region who want peace reacted with dismay to the news that Houthi rebels in Yemen had fired a missile in an apparent attempt to disrupt Israeli President Israel Herzog's official visit to the United Arab Emirates. According to a January 30 Politico report, the UAE intercepted the missile fired by the rebels. It was the third such attack by Houthi rebels in the last few weeks, the article states. Luckily, it does not appear to have claimed any lives or to have disrupted President Herzog's meeting with the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi. The Politico article quotes the UAE's government-run news agency, WAM, stating that the wreckage of the missile did not reach any populated areas of the UAE. So the event was harrowing, but ultimately limited in its destructiveness. The same cannot be said of an attack by the rebels on a fuel station two weeks previously that killed three people and injured six. The attack comes at a critical juncture, as Israel seeks not only to bolster its ties to other Middle East nations, as envisioned in the Abraham Accords, but also to cultivate closer ties with nations outside the Middle East. The Jewish News Syndicate reported on January 30 that Israel and India had jointly commemorated three decades of strong relations, and that Israel's Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, characterized the bond between the two countries as a deep friendship and people expect that he will visit India later in 2022. In the invective directed at Israel on campuses over its supposed imperialism and repression in disputed territories, all too often we see a double standard applied. Those determined to demonize Israel bash the country while giving a pass to much more serious and chronic abusers of human rights such as China which an independent commission in London recently affirmed has committed genocide against its Uyghur minority. The controversies over Middle East policy all too often distract from Israel's status as a highly tech-savvy, startup and investment-friendly modern nation with a dynamic and growing economy holding out the prospect of profitable partnerships for those without anti-Israel blinkers. It is encouraging to see the Abraham Accords engineered under the Trump administration continue to bear fruit and to resonate within and far beyond Middle East. In spite of the global pandemic, the website Trading Economics reports that foreign direct investment in Israel increased by more than a billion dollars in the final quarter of 2021. Practice what you preach. The New York Times is not known for its even-handed coverage of the U.S. political scene, especially after having run daily attacks on the policies and administration of Donald Trump. During the 2016 race, the newspaper proudly predicted that Hillary Clinton had a 91% chance of winning and Trump only a 9% chance. 
Its prediction was obviously meant to demoralize Trump voters and make them ask themselves why they should even bother to go stand in line for hours to cast their vote when the election's outcome was a fait accompli. During the Trump administration, and even now, with a Democratic president in office, the paper can scarcely hide its loathing for the GOP. All this is by way of putting in context an interesting report by Kenneth P. Vogel and Shane Goldmacher that appeared in the New York Times on January 29. It is entitled, Democrats Decried Dark Money, Then They Won With It in 2020. The title says it all. This piece details how contributions to the Democratic Party war chest from anonymous sources far exceeded the total funds from such sources going to the Republican Party during the 2020 race. To be more exact, the article states that 15 of the most politically active nonprofit organizations supporting Democratic candidates spent over $1.5 billion in 2020, compared to $900 million spent by the same number of nonprofits on the GOP side. The nonprofits in question are not tightly regulated and do not always disclose where the often staggering sums of money they receive and put to work for the party of their choice are coming from, the article tells us. In the author's view, the deployment of such money from anonymous sources is remaking the political process in the U.S., and in 2020, benefited the Democratic Party far more than its rival. This honesty is refreshing, but don't hold your breath waiting for an apology or retraction from Democratic Party leaders for all their sanctimony about the role of corporations in the political process. The article does an excellent job of laying bare the hypocrisy on display here. It mentions the left's professed aversion to the role of corporations in politics in the Citizens United case. It acknowledges the increasing role in the dark money sinkhole of mega-donors such as George Soros. But the article could perhaps have gone even a bit further and frankly acknowledged that the party that casts itself as the party of voting rights and economic populism, favoring the increased participation of disenfranchised members of our society, has increasingly turned into the vehicle and tool of the most powerful, super-rich elites. Intellectual Freedom in Tennessee This writer has frequently called out the dangers to creative freedom posed by the left, a disturbing phenomenon that has gotten increased attention in recent months and even landed on the cover of The Economist magazine in September. While The Economist's cover story on the illiberal left was incisive and badly needed in this age of cancel culture and tyranny on campuses, honesty does require us to acknowledge that threats to free speech today take myriad forms. On January 27, the website Book and Film Globe ran a piece by editor Neil Pollock entitled The Mouse That Roared, Tennessee School Board bans Art Spiegelman's book just in time for Holocaust Remembrance Day. As its title suggests, the article details efforts by the school board of McMinn County, Tennessee, in the form of a 10-0 vote, to expunge Art Spiegelman's graphic novel Mouse from curricula. Mouse, an account of the Holocaust making use of animals as characters, is widely considered a powerful and revolutionary work of literature one that brings home all the horror of the Holocaust in a wrenching manner, but the school board evidently felt that the profanity and depictions of violence in the graphic novel, including the murder of children, make Mao's unsuitable for school libraries and curricula. 
I agree with my colleague Neil that this heavy-handed move will exacerbate the ignorance about the Holocaust among segments of our population. The decision is also baffling because the school board members must know that other works that are standard parts of curricula today are rife with strong language and depictions of violence. For example, William Golding's Lord of the Flies presents horrific attacks by boys on a pig and on each other. Joseph Conrad's great novel Heart of Darkness has been read as a metaphor for insemination. Sexuality, profanity, and violence are present in the work of writers as varied as Kurt Vonnegut, Ernest Hemingway, William Faulkner, William Styron, Shirley Jackson, Richard Wright, Stephen Crane, the Brontes, and many others who are part of the modern canon. Perhaps the McMinn County School Board plans to toss all those works on a bonfire. If not, they at least owe an explanation of the rhyme and reason behind their decision to ban Mao's. What the school board's vote betrays, above all, is a lack of basic awareness about the world of school kids and teenagers in 2022. They must know that banning one book will not limit anyone's access to any particular sort of content in this day and age. What kids do not encounter in their school curricula, they can summon with the press of a few buttons on their phones. All the decision does is embarrass a nation whose school system is already desperately fighting for credibility. Punishing the Skeptics It is one thing to believe strongly in the utility and wisdom of getting fully vaccinated against COVID-19. It is another matter to enact punitive measures against those who, for one reason or another, have not received vaccinations. The province of Quebec, as BBC News reported on January 11, has deemed the latter course of action to be necessary. Quebec's premier, Francois Legault, has announced that Quebec will slap as yet unspecified fines on the roughly 12.8% of the province's population who were still unvaccinated. This decision, which Quebec is the first province to implement, comes on the heels of other strict measures, such as requiring proof of vaccination to shop in cannabis and liquor stores, the article reports. Hospitals are overwhelmed, and more than 12,000 people in the province have died from COVID-19, according to the BBC article. The tough new measure, as stated above, makes Quebec an outlier among Canada's provinces. On the one hand, you have to admire Quebec for going its own way and not receiving dictates from Ottawa about how to handle an urgent public health matter. It is well for the providence to assert its independence from a confederation that continually threatens to subsume its distinct cultural and linguistic identity. At the same time, some may wonder about the precedent set by a policy that penalizes citizens for decisions they make about their own health. What's next? Maybe obesity, smoking, drinking alcohol, and other conditions and behaviors known to contribute directly or indirectly to morbidity and or to a more dangerous environment for others will someday incur fines or even harsher punitive measures. For all the reality of Quebec's ongoing public health crisis, Legault, in enacting this Orwellian measure, has opened a Pandora's box. The long-term consequences are impossible to foresee. 
written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Thank you.